This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast, and perhaps I need to welcome back myself. I've been gone for some time working on a variety of other projects. Uh, did some teaching over in Israel, working with the Israeli Defense Force uh, uh, over in Tel Aviv, and getting ready to go to a trip to uh, the Republic of Georgia, and then shortly thereafter to Kenya, teaching some pre-hospital trauma life support. Also, we're finalizing a application for uh, IC rounds, which should be out hopefully in the next week or two, uh, which will allow people to have greater access to the podcast, um, and therefore you can perhaps uh, stream them. Uh, I find it's particularly useful. Um, people are downloading the podcast and listening to them real time, but there may be a podcast on a topic, say, for a year ago or even two years ago that's relevant to something you're experiencing currently in the intensive care unit. I do this a lot on rounds. I'll refer the residents back to a podcast we did some time ago, uh, say, for on renal failure or electrical injuries or what have you. Uh, and that way you'll have all the podcasts uh, immediately available to you uh, on your iPhone. The topic that I really want to get into today and perhaps over the next couple of podcasts, because it's a reasonably large topic, is the issue of acute pancreatitis. When one thinks of pancreatitis, we really can break it down initially into acute pancreatitis and um, um, severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Now, acute pancreatitis is perhaps the more um, milder form of these, particularly of, of the two. Uh, acute pancreatitis is is only uh, is not commonly associated with organ dysfunction and really has a mortality rate of less than one percent. Uh, acute pancreatitis does not often need to see uh, the inside of intensive care unit in and by itself, unless the patient brings with them some comorbid conditions such as diabetes or heart failure or, or, or cardiac disease, which require perhaps more intensive monitoring. Now, patients with severe acute pancreatitis uh, are certainly much more severe uh, and, and systemically ill, as the name would apply. Um, patients who have severe uh, acute pancreatitis or severe acute necrotizing pancreatitis uh, often develop what we call the SIRS syndrome. You remember SIRS syndrome is the systemic inflammatory response syndrome that often looks like the condition of septic shock. Often these patients with severe acute pancreatitis can progress, uh, ultimately leading to pancreatic necrosis and certainly multi-organ dysfunction and even death. The mortality rate reported uh, in patients who have severe uh, acute pancreatitis has been reported between 15 and 40%. Like many conditions in critical care, there have been the development of consensus conferences to try to make sense of the uh, vast literature that exists for a particular topic. And there's a lot of um, manuscripts out that just aren't very good science or, or they're uh, antiquated uh, in their conclusions or their methodology. So what may be a valid paper to quote in, in 1975 when that was our best information certainly is not particularly applicable in 2010. And these consensus conferences try to make sense of this. Now, what is the etiology and epidemiology of um, uh, acute pancreatitis and uh, severe uh, acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Well, pancreatitis has been noted to have an incidence of about 16 cases per 100,000 person years. has an overall mortality rate of about 1.5 deaths 
per 100,000 person years. Now, across the world, pancreatitis is slightly more common in males than it is in females. However, the etiology varies with the gender. Uh, biliary pancreatitis is more common in women. And if you don't, you're not familiar with biliary pancreatitis, is that's pancreatitis that results from a gallstone. A gallstone occurs. The gallbladder is drained by the common bile duct. It goes through the ampulla of water, shares a common duct uh, with the um, um, pancreas, and when you pass stones, you can create pancreatitis. Now, with men, um, uh, more common related sources of pancreatitis are alcohol-related diseases. Now, when you're in an intensive care unit, um, it's going to vary, too, because you're going to see more severe cases in the ICU. But in developed countries, gallstones account for about 45% of all cases of acute pancreatitis. And worldwide, it's a more common uh, etiology of acute pancreatitis. Now, there is the uh, surgical mnemonic, which is clearly sexist, but is perhaps applicable, though, when we think about who develops gallstones, and it's the female fat and 40. Uh, uh, typically, women who are middle-aged, uh, obese, uh, are more prone to develop gallstones. And so when you see a patient who has pancreatitis and they fit that kind of not pleasant and, and clearly sexist mnemonic, you need to be searching, well, do we need to get an ultrasound? And, and for all intents and purposes, if a male comes in, they've got pancreatitis, that being a very common source, you should certainly get an ultrasound of the abdomen uh, evaluating the, the uh, gallbladder as well as the common bile duct. If a patient has an elevation of their serum, uh, of their liver transaminases, you should also uh, be considering the fact that the gallbladder is a likely etiology. If you're within the United States, you should certainly be considering alcohol as a major uh, potential source of uh, acute pancreatitis. Infrequent but not rare cases of pancreatitis include uh, um, sources of trauma, and uh, not an infrequent cause is the patient who's getting a post-ERCP can develop a procedural-related pancreatitis. Drug reactions, it's usually described as idiosyncratic. But certainly be mindful that drugs um, used to treat HIV uh, have an association with the development of pancreatitis. Other not frequent causes include the development of uh, tumors around, of the pancreas or the periampular tumors. Hypertriglyceridemia is, a again, not a common cause, but it's something that we should always be mindful of, that when we see somebody who has pancreatitis, we typically tend to get uh, serum triglyceride levels. Hypercalcemia uh, is another cause of uh, pancreatitis. This is usually associated with the development of hyperparathyroidism. Um, hypothermia has also been caused, um, as, as it listed as a cause for the development of pancreatitis. Congenital abnormalities of the biliary tract, this could be things like uh, pancreatic divism or colloidal cysts. And lastly, there's uh, different types of parasitic infections that can result in pancreatitis. Now, if you're a student or a surgical resident, you will be probably asked more commonly of what are the rare esoteric causes of pancreatitis that you'll never see. And uh, those include uh, bites of certain spiders, scorpions, and being bit by a gila monster. Now let's change gears a little bit and, and drill down into somewhat of the pathogenesis. And let's think about a little bit about the GI hormones and enzymes that we uh, think about frequently when it comes time for surgical in-service exams. We're not sure what initially causes pancreatitis, um, but it's clearly that something basically upregulates the patient into a surge response. Now, it appears that we can have inappropriate activation of the proteolytic enzyme trypsin. Now, some experts think that trypsin is really the initial step 
and the development of pancreatitis. Now, trypsinogen is the uh, proenzyme, and, and trypsinogen is activated through the hydrolysis of the N-terminal peptide uh, called trypsinogen activating peptide. So let's go through this. Trypsinogen is you basically tears off the N-terminal peptide of the protein trypsinogen using this um, um, uh, trypsinogen activating peptide. And this leaves us with trypsin. Now trypsin can activate the protease receptor PAR2. Now this protease receptor PAR2 is found um, on the cells of the pancreatic acinar cells as well as pancreatic duct cells. Now that we have that perfectly clear, how do we go about making the diagnosis of pancreatitis? Well, typically people who present with pancreatitis present with reasonably severe abdominal pain, which there's a lot of things that are potentially catastrophic that present as abdominal pain, and therefore these can be things such as an acute perforation or mesenteric infarction. Now, the diagnosis of pancreatitis can be particularly difficult, uh, or for any uh, patient who's got abdominal pain, can be made difficult or complicated by a person who has uh, a post-operative condition for another reason because uh, their metal status may be decreased or they're receiving narcotics for their index operation. And this makes assessment of the admin always more difficult. Now, in medical school, we're constantly talking about the physical findings of uh, people who have severe pancreatitis is uh, having a Cullen and Gray-Turner sign. Uh, the Cullen sign is periumbilical uh, bruising. The Gray-Turner sign is the flank bruising. One way to keep those in mind is that Turner, you're grabbing somebody, you grab them by the flank, and therefore they have um, ecchymosis of the flank. These are exceptionally rare, but they often will find their way onto exams as the physical findings consistent with the pancreatitis. But I suspect that the vast majority of cases of pancreatitis you will see will not have either the uh, either of these signs. The most typical laboratory test that we associate with pancreatitis is the elevation of the amylase. This is true that frequently patients who have pancreatitis have an elevated amylase. But patients can have normal amylase and have a pancreatitis. But it's probably seen less than about 10 to 20 percent of all cases and it's usually seen only in cases of acute pancreatitis secondary to the hyperlipidemia, uh, an acute exacerbation of chronic pancreatitis when the amylase is determined to be a late in the course of the disease. So just because somebody has um, a normal amylase does not mean that they don't have pancreatitis. But what this is saying is that if the patient has uh, pancreatitis secondary to having hyperlipidemia, they may have a normal amylase, or if they have chronic pancreatitis, they can have pain consistent with pancreatitis, but not have an elevation of their amylase acutely, because in chronic pancreatitis, a chronic recurring pancreatitis especially, the amylase is not always an early finding. Now, the other uh, blood test that's frequently ordered uh, in cases of uh, pancreatitis is the lipase. Um, and the lipase and the amylase will basically uh, spike at different time courses in the disease of pancreatitis. The serum lipase will typically rise within four to eight hours after the onset of an acute pancreatitis. 
uh, and usually peaks at about 24 hours and returns to normal after about 8 to 14 days. The major advantage of serum lipase is it has an increased sensitivity in acute alcoholic pancreatitis in patients who initially present to the emergency room days after the onset of the disease since the serum lipase remains elevated for a longer period of time than does the amylase. Now, simultaneous elevation of the amylase and lipase does not improve your diagnostic accuracy. Next, there are all kinds of scoring mechanisms that we've uh, learned or have taught over the years to try to uh, provide some sort of uh, severity scoring to the disease of pancreatitis. Now, it's, uh, pancreatitis can be uh, particularly severe, um, and remember, it's an evolving disease. It may not be apparent how sick the patient is when you initially see them in the emergency department or upon admission to the intensive care unit. Now, patients can be, appear clinically well at admission, but can rapidly deteriorate in, say, the 24 to 48 hours. So that's been why we've had some attempts to try to provide some sort of grading system as to how, patient, how sick the patient is so we can perhaps prognosticate um, what we need to do or how close we have to monitor a particular patient. Now, presently, there's really no clinical, biochemical, or radiographic test or scoring system that can substitute for basically the ongoing assessment of serial examination and evaluation of the patient's end organ function. How well are they perfusing? What's their capillary refill? Are they making urine or are they hypoxic? Perhaps the most popularized or the most uh, p- uh, common uh, pancreatic scoring system is that of Ranson's criteria. Now, Ranson's criteria really focuses really on the, on the volume needs and assesses the patient both at presentation as well as 48 hours later. Now, what are these uh, Ranson's criteria? At presentation, um, the um, Ranson's criteria are if you have an age greater than 55 years of age, if your white blood cell count is greater than 16,000, if your blood glucose level is greater than 200, if your serum alanine transferase is greater than 250, or if your serum lactate dehydrogenase is greater than 350. So going through that real fast at presentation, age greater than 55, white blood cell count greater than 16, blood glucose greater than 200, um, uh, alanine transferase greater than 250, and LDH greater than 350. Now, at the uh, during the initial 48 hours, uh, we reassess on ransom's criteria. And did your crit fall more than 10%? Did your BUN go up greater than 5? Is your serum calcium less than 8? Arterial PO2 less than 60? Base deficit greater than uh, minus 4? And estimated fluid sequestration of greater than 6 liters. Then there's the Balthazar CT scanning uh, scoring system. And I just love that name of Balthazar. Uh, sounds like uh, an evil person. I don't know Dr. Balthazar, but it sounds like a, a villain from a Harry Potter movie. The Balthazar CT scanning system does not really lend itself very well to um, description in, a, in an audio podcast because it's very tabular type. But these are some of the things that they look for is, you know, they grade whether this, this, the pancreas looks normal. Does it look focal or diffuse enlargement? Is there contour irregularity? Is there inhomogeneous attenuation? Is there peripancreatic haziness or model densities? Ill-defined pancreatic fluid collection? Ill-defined fluid collections or gas, necrosis, uh, and if there's necrosis, how much is it? Is it like less than 30% of the gland or 50% of the gland or greater than 50% of the gland? And they end up giving a scoring system where they grade somebody A, B, C, D, and E in a score of 0 to 1. And that's the Balthazar CT scanning scoring system. 
Now, when we look at imaging, uh, it's taking more of a role in both the diagnosis and determination of severity uh, of pancreatitis. The, the real key uh, tests we're using right now are ultrasounding and CT scanning. And as we've mentioned, uh, ultrasound is typically done very early in these patients because gallstones is such a frequent cause of pancreatitis. So typically somebody will get an ultrasound to evaluate the gallbladder and the common bile duct. Um, they may determine the presence or absence of free fluid in the abdominal cavity, uh, which is helpful. But an ultrasound is not really a, a wonderful modality of um, evaluating uh, the pancreas. If you want to evaluate the pancreas or image it, really CAT scan is really the gold standard of diagnosing pancreatic necrosis or peripancreatic uh, lesions, as well as for acute grading of the pancreatitis. And that goes back to our Balthazar CT scan scoring system. Uh, CT scans can be helpful in patients when the diagnosis is in doubt or when complications may be developing. It, it should not be used to confirm the diagnosis of pancreatitis early in the disease. Um, unless there is a diagnostic uncertainty, contrast CT scans should not be performed in the first 72 hours of presentation because necrosis may not be fully established for four days. Okay, now... Why is that important? Well, I kind of look at this a lot like I would somebody who's developing a CVA, somebody gets a CAT scan. If we have a patient who, uh, for instance, has new right-sided weakness and somebody gets a CAT scan, what do we tell the family? We tell the family that the test is only helpful if it's positive for something, but a negative test is not helpful uh, in, the, in the event of a stroke. And I think most people who work in intensive care units understand that, have been exposed to that, because you won't see changes in the brain uh, early on. And that's why we'll, we'll progress to things like MRIs. We have a similar kind of thing that occurs with the uh, pancreas and early CT scanning. That if we get a CT scan in somebody and there's not a significant amount of changes, it doesn't necessarily mean the patient is fine. It means that those changes have not developed such that we can yet image them with a CAT scan because they may take as late as four days to be demonstrable on the CAT scan. Additionally, there's been some reports that uh, by the use of intravenous contrast can actually disturb the pancreatic microcirculation and perhaps aggravate the pancreatitis. Contrast administration can also, uh, as we're well aware of, can exacerbate uh, renal insufficiency, which may be occurring particularly in the first 24 to 48 hours when the patient uh, may have large amounts of fluid sequestration secondary to the SERS response from the uh, severe acute pancreatitis. Now, what if for some reason that we can't give um, um, we can't give uh, IV contrast to obtain the CAT scan on somebody who we think pancreatic necrosis uh, is going on? It's necessary to image the patient. Well, then in that case, you can go to consider uh, MRI and uh, even uh, MRCP. Uh, uh, to identify potential uh, lesions and, and try to get a handle on the severity of the pancreatitis. The major advantage of MRCP for severe acute pancreatitis is it really includes really amazing images and superior resolution without using ionizing radiation or having to give large volumes of ionated contrast media. However, there are prolonged scan times and things such as bowel peristalsis or vascular motion artifacts or GI air, metal clips, uh, can all create uh, artifact and degrade the quality of the images for the MRCP. Well, what about the use of ERCP as an imaging modality in a patient with acute pancreatitis? 
Well, that would seem reasonably controversial because remember that we talked early on that uh, ERCP can be viewed as a cause of pancreatitis, a procedural-related uh, pancreatitis. Uh, ERCP is not indicated in patients with mild pancreatitis or in patients with non-biliary pancreatitis. Um, uh, if the patient has biliary pancreatitis from a, a, a common uh, duct stone, then an ERCP and perhaps a sphincterotomy or clearing of the uh, ampulla can be therapeutic and curative for the cause of pancreatitis. So in that regard, ERCP is clearly indicated in patients with biliary pancreatitis, biliary obstruction, or cholangitis. Now, controversy exists over the use of ERCP in patients with biliary pancreatitis, but without bile duct obstruction. Now, there's the International Consensus Group recommended that in the setting of obstructive jaundice and separative acute pancreatitis, Urgent ERCP should be performed within 72 hours of the onset of symptoms. Now, if ERCP cannot be accomplished because it's not technically feasible or available, alternative biliary drainage methods should be considered. Now, these are things like percutaneous transhepatic drainage or even perhaps a cholecystostomy. In addition, in patients with severe acute pancreatitis, Due to suspected or confirmed gallstones, but without obstructive jaundice, ERCP and endostopic sphincterotomy should be considered strongly within 72 hours of the onset of symptoms. Now, the data on acute pancreatitis and ERCP and, and sphincterotomy come from really four clinical trials. I like to give these trials, uh, I try to reference these things as best as I can. Um, but I can't send out people's papers, so if you can get them off PubMed or whatever your medical library is. But here what we have is Folsch um, and colleagues, um, and it's from uh, the German group on acute biliary pancreatitis. The, t- the title of the paper is Early ERCP and pap- um, uh, Papillotomy Compared to Conservative Treatment for Acute Biliary Pancreatitis, New England Journal of Medicine, 1997, volume 336, pages 237 to 242. Nietzsche and colleagues, and the title of the paper is The Role of ERCP in Endoscopic Sphincterotomy and Acute Pancreatitis. Um, and that's from Best Practices uh, Research in Clinical Gastroenterology, 1999, Volume 13, pages 331 to 343. Uh, Nepal Thomas, I'm killing that name, uh, title of the paper is Controlled Trial of Urgent Endoscopic Retrograde Cholangiography and Endoscopic Sphincterotomy versus Conservative Treatment for Acute Pancreatitis Due to Gallstones. That was in Lancet in 1988, pages 979 to 983. And lastly, Fan and colleagues, Early Treatment, uh, of acute biliary pancreatitis by endoscopic papillotomy, New England Journal of Medicine, 1993, uh, volume 328, uh, pages 228 to 232. Uh, these are obviously some uh, rather older studies, uh, so the information that I'm presenting here is not new, but uh, when you ask somebody sometimes to do uh, an ERCP, you're going to get some pushback, and so uh, they're still relevant studies. In one of these studies, in a trial of 121 patients, they randomized ERCP within 72 hours versus conservative treatment, and there was a significant reduction in morbidity, 17% versus 34%, with a p-value of 0.03. But there was no significant difference in mortality, 2% versus 8%. Uh, p-value was 0.23 in the patients with ERCP. Patients' groups were similar in this. Um, in another study of ERCP performed within 24 hours of the intervention group, there was a significant reduction in morbidity, 18% versus 
regards to biliary sepsis, and that was significant without a clinical reduction in mortality, five deaths versus nine deaths. Uh, another randomized trial, uh, and this is the uh, NOWAC uh, and colleagues' patency of the Centauri duct um, and acute biliary pancreatitis, prospective ERCP studies was in endoscopy 1990. Um, in this randomized study of ERCP versus conservative therapy in 280 patients with 178 patients assigned to ERCP, surprisingly 75 of the 178 patients had impacted biliary stones. The study is the only one that demonstrated both a significant reduction in morbidity and mortality. The study by Fulch and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine, 1997, Volume 336, pages 237 and 242. That was a multi-center trial. It was terminated early uh, because ERCP was shown to be more harmful than conservative managed. Unlike the previous studies, the study showed a significant increase in complications in ERCP group. Um, um, and these respiratory failure uh, as, and as well as renal failure and an increased mortality rate in the early ERCP group. So clearly this is something uh, where the jury is still out. It would appear that early, the only benefit that you're going to get by early ERCP is a reduction in morbidity, not a reduction in mortality. And even in that, uh, but yet you have this study here in the English Journal of Medicine that shows that there was a um, uh, increase in morbidity as well as an increase in mortality in the ERCP group. So this is something that we don't have the answer on, and I'm sure people will be fighting uh, about for years. So this is our first podcast on acute pancreatitis. On the next podcast, we'll get into some of the issues of the uh, management of the multi-organ dysfunction and perhaps uh, when do we use antibiotics, when should we not use antibiotics, and uh, when should a person go to the operating room, and what operations should be done, and when should they not go to the operating room. You've been listening to the podcast IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Um, you can download us on icrounds.com or uh, get us through iTunes. If you drop by iTunes, you want to leave a positive comment, that's very helpful to us and also we will be launching a icy rounds application so you'll be able to download this directly without even having to go to a computer thanks for listening have a great day